On this episode of the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast, we talk with Eric Manis, CEO of Hexus. We discuss Hexus, a technology that uses biosignals to help understand human emotion. We also talk more broadly about why neuroscience is an interesting and, in our view, worthwhile pursuit. Hello, this is Avery Beddoes from Loop Ventures. Welcome to the Neurotech Podcast. I'm sitting here with Eric Manis of Hexus. How's it going, Avery? Is going well, Eric. How about you? I'm doing pretty great. Happy to be here with you in uh, Palo Alto. Of course. We have a rare occasion where Eric and I are actually recording this in the same room, which is always exciting. Just to kick it off, I'd love, Eric, for you to tell us a little bit about Hexus, your company. Sure. So Hexus is a software solution that understands people's emotions. And it does that by pulling different sensor data, usually from a mobile environment, to get at that sentiment. Uh, Now what you can do with that is you can do cool stuff like super personalization. Anything from music to shows can be tailored for you and your personal interests, all the way up to things that might be less obvious, like the user experience in an app or on your phone. So the idea there is, you know, grandma should be able to use the device as easily as you do. There shouldn't be that barrier to using technology. The thesis behind that is technology should understand you and adapt accordingly, not you having to adapt to the technology. So Eric, let me ask you this. In any early stage startup, particularly one driven by a large vision, as a CEO, you have to make a trade-off between the vision you hold for the long run and what your customers want. And so that's what I'd love to hear a little bit about. I know you've done lots of thinking around how you see neuroscience in society. We can talk more about this later, but particularly with Hexus, I know you've done a lot of thinking about what you want Hexus to be, but I also know you've done a lot of talking to potential customers and you know what they want. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between those look like and what trade-offs are you making? So the central conceit behind Hexus was to change the way that humans and technology interact in some way, shape, or form. That has manifested today in terms of from the customer side as a plug and play software that can understand the users of mobile apps, whether that is for the purposes of advertising or the purposes of increasing the value of the service, like say better music recommendation for the user, that's at the customer's discretion. And both of those things are interesting, but I would definitely side on the side of the personalization aspect being was very compelling because I, that's what drew me to Hexus in the first place is changing the way that I interact with my tech and personalization can streamline that process. Hexus is doing what I would consider a commercializable business from the neuroscience side. Originally, I was very interested in something on the neurotech side more specifically. So building a product that could sense brainwaves is something that I'm very interested in, was interested in. But I realized very quickly that that's got its own... Let me interrupt you real quickly. One thing that we talk about a lot internally and I spend a lot of time thinking about is we as ventures look at neurotechnology, but you got to pick our definition of neurotechnology. There's a lot of things you could include or not include in that. In your mind, what is neurotech and what is not neurotech? And what are the adjacent domains that things fall into and they bump slightly outside of that bounds of neurotech? So yeah, that actually really helps me clarify what I was trying to say a minute ago. I am pretty strict in my definition of neurotech. I usually relegate that specific phrase to hardware that has some interaction with your body and ideally your brain. So that can be anything from uh, Halo Neuroscience's headphones that do stimulation to things that are more read and write like the Muse or the Think headbands. 
And when I say what we're doing is not necessarily neurotech, it is neurotech by a lot of people's standards. Mine is just a more limited description because my background working in the lab with neuroscience technology. I think that software can have a lot of neuroscience principles, like ours does, with our emotion models. Expound on that. So I kind of got a lot of the ideas for what we're working on here back when I was working on creating neurofeedback games for stroke patients. So when you already have damage to your brain, it's easy to get frequently frustrated with not being able to do what you would normally consider basic tasks. To understand that better, I started digging into the literature of emotion models and where they come from, how I can incorporate better design features into this game I was making so that people would get less frustrated and it'd be easier for them to continue to do the therapy and retrain parts of their damaged brains. And that got me really interested because I found this whole body of literature on emotion models and that had a neuroscience background where people had been looking at, you know, taking different sensor data and trying to figure out how that related to the emotional state. Is this like the PAD model? The A PANA model is the one we're basing ours okay. off of. Yeah. So positive effect, negative effect is a pretty standard two-dimensional emotion model. Okay. Where you have three-dimensional positivity, arousal, and dominance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of different models. Another well-known three-dimensional model is one that deals with actual like neurotransmitters as one of each of the axes. It's really? weird. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. We settled with the two-dimensional one because it makes sense for a product. It's achievable. There's a lot of literature behind it. So. so let me let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. You have a user who is assessed by Hexus software and Hexus is placing them in real time on this two-dimensional positive affect, negative affect spectrum? Yeah, more or less. We're taking a bunch of different sensor data things that are biometric coming inherently from you, like a heart rate, or to a lesser extent, something like an accelerometer on your phone or your watch is very powerful for telling not just body position, but what that posture is entailing about your mood. Things like location, where you are in the world, the weather, stuff like that all factors in. And then this gets processed through a machine learning pipeline and puts it in a grid that essentially says, okay, on one axis, it's either a low intensity emotion or a high intensity emotion you're feeling. And the other axis is a positive or negative emotion. And so you end up with things like you're comfortable, but also thoughtful, or you're frustrated and a little bit melancholy. So you mentioned that some of the sources you're getting your sensor data from are wearables. Talk to me about the wearable market. I've been keeping a close eye on the wearable market because it is potentially a big part of where our software could pull information from. We're not relying on wearables, but they're of interest. So the way I see the wearable market working is right now, we're kind of in like a uh, plateau point where uh, more of an inflection point rather, where everyone's kind of predicting where the market's going to go in the next few years, because you have the saturation that happened of wearables. Everyone is trying to compete to get their device worn on people's wrists or in their pockets, you know, if it's a Fitbit. So I really think personally, the way I expect that problem to be handled is you're going to see a renewed focus on more smartwatch-esque wearables, wearables that you constantly have on you in a high visibility section that provide more value. So Apple smartwatch is a great example of a wearable that does that because it's got really good heart rate sensors baked into it. You can get accelerometer info. What role does fashion play in this? Huge fashion, huge fashion role. I mean, that's one of my arguments for why you don't see a lot of neurotech that is brainwave reading because it's just very good fashion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the forms I mean, there. But it's an interesting thing to ponder, though, because when you consider it, there's no fundamental reason why anything we consider fashionable right now ought to be fashionable. Oh, for sure. The prime example of that is you watch a movie from four decades ago and you're like, what were they wearing? <laughs> and so the question does need to be asked, what does it take to induce a certain fashion to be a norm? And is it feasible for more headworn things to become a fashion norm, which would be a basis under which a brainwave reading device could proliferate in a consumer sense? I definitely think part of the aspect of wearables is that they need to be sleek 
and a little less noticeable. That's just kind of one of the tenets I think holds true no matter what fashion direction you're going, less bulky is better. With headwear specifically, I think that's a kind of a little bit of a hard sell even if you start having celebrities wear it, influencers wear it, just because headwear is for a lot of the time a functional part of the outfit. And it's so specific in that when you see someone with a hat on, you take notice of it, right? As opposed to their smartwatch. And so having one headwear that just has one fashion to it is going to be really a hard sell, I think, for a lot of people to incorporate into their decision-making. But now we're talking about fashion on the runway, which is not my wheelhouse. Neither is in mine. I will circle this back, though, to the second part of what I think is going to happen with wearables, which is I think you're going to have, alongside this renewed interest in like a streamline, incorporate as many wearables as possible into a useful device, you're also going to have the exact opposite happen on some spectrums. So you're going to have very specific wearables that you can have things that would slip into your waistband and track like your diaphragm movement, for example. I was just at CES and I saw a bunch of these more specific, hyper-targeted wearables that give additional insights you would never be able to get. How would you rate the pulse on wearables at CES from totally excited to totally bored? So I was at CES two years ago and it was way more hyped up on the wearable train than this year, in my opinion. But what I did see was a lot more focus on those fashion-forward, all-in-one, useful devices. So there were a lot of the smartwatch people there from all over. And then there was the second trend I'm mentioning, which is the very specific, very functional wearables. And I think that makes a lot of sense because it is the only way to get someone to have an additional product. Cause we're facing this like too many wearables in the market problem right now. The only way to get that additional product is to actually provide a really strong value proposition to the users. So right now you've got Fitbit as a really good example of a wearable that I don't necessarily think will continue into the future or it will continue in the same way, shape or form. To do what Fitbit did is not necessarily possible anymore. It's too saturated. But what you can do is you can measure very specific vitals and those can be useful for a certain group of people and that's why you would have a wearable be adopted. So the reason that you're focused on wearables is because it gives you some sensor data that tells you something about a person, and then you can structure that sensor data into some more semantic understanding of the person that you can then help to understand their behavior in an application. Underlying all of that is some insight from the neuroscience or the psychology or the cognitive science literature. What is the process that you and your team have for finding relevant literature and translating the insights of that relevant literature into something productizable? Definitely a lot of late nights of reading. (laughs) It's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure exactly how to answer it because right now what we're focusing on is data streams in general that have a large amount of research that's been done on a one-off example. So, you know, not necessarily using that wearable or that data stream in conjunction with others, but in and of itself being very robustly tested with some certain emotion models. That's one criteria for what we focus on right now. And the second one is that it is a common enough sensor that we can get data of sufficient quality from. And that really kind of narrows down the entire scope of what you just asked of this literature review and internalization into our product for now. But that's definitely something we're going to have to figure out as we grow the product more in the future. Do you consider yourselves a neuroscience company? I'd like to. I think that the overarching goals of the company are definitely neuroscience aligned. So yeah, I would say I consider us a neuroscience company or neuroscience software. We definitely incorporated a lot of my neuroscience background and understandings into figuring out our emotion models and making them actually, you know, not just off the cuff. (laughs) Let's actually take that little tangent for our listeners here. 
What is your background? How did you wind up here? So I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I spent five years there and I got three bachelors, mechanical engineering, biochemistry, and the neuroscience scholars degree there. I started out my career working in the human robotics lab. Spent about two years there, realized that a lot of the problems in humanoid robotics were not something that I was interested in solving. Things like actuators that are a little bit more efficient and batteries that last a bit longer. So I pivoted, started working on predictive analytics, predictive algorithms using biometric data, a little bit relevant to what we're doing today. So we were looking at muscle data, figuring out if we could predict right before muscle failure was going to occur to prevent that from ever happening in the first place. I went on to work on the stroke rehabilitation program that I mentioned. And then I ended up in a lab doing some research on brain implants in rodents. So you did your your time in school, mm-hmm. came out with a lot of degrees. You were in labs, and you moved slowly in this sort of entrepreneurial direction. To what extent do you identify yourself as an academic versus, ah. I guess, entrepreneur is the complement to that term, but don't hold me to that. Am I no, changing we'll use what that. I want there? No, I definitely consider myself an entrepreneur. And part of that is because when I was in research labs, somewhere along the line, I realized what I want to accomplish long term isn't something that's necessarily the best achieved by me being one person in a lab working on it. Why? Uh, it's just the scope of what I want to do is not something that is very easily achievable by one person. It's more of there needs to be a lot of capital, a lot of man hours focused on this project. And I think that those exist. They just need to be centralized. And they need to be like herded together. And so I've reoriented to the thought process of if I can get a hundred people way smarter than me working in a coordinated effort on the topics that I care about, that will go a lot further towards changing the world. I'm also consider myself a little bit better at entrepreneurship than academia. Go a little stir crazy sitting in the lab all day. Uh, I like talking to people. So it's enjoyable what I do now. It's definitely a common theme I hear amongst the academic turned entrepreneurs, people, people who like people tend Mm -hmm. to gravitate towards communicating with people, which I think entrepreneurship allows a lot more of than does research. Definitely. To put it in context, I definitely loved and appreciated my time in research labs. I spent a lot of my career kind of targeting towards nerve regeneration, how nerve regeneration intersects with, you know, implanting mechanical devices, how you get those connections to be formed, how you can start to understand what those connections mean and in a long-term sense, you know, decode neural connection. I get the impression that there's a lot of things you want to do in the world and a lot of these are through a mechanism through the domain of neuroscience. And you've kind of stated that if you have a hundred people that you can organized to work on a particular neuroscience problem, then you can do more to change the world. And so abstractly, why is neuroscience the avenue you're pursuing to achieve change in the world? There are lots of people sitting around us in Silicon Valley right now who would pick their favorite domain, just like you pick your favorite coffee shop to go to. Why is neuroscience your favorite coffee shop? Okay. So I'll try to keep it abstract, but It really relates to neuroscience and your brain and who you are and your consciousness being core aspects of being human. I think that there's a lot of good that needs to be done still in regard to keeping your brain healthy, keeping your brain working longer. And if you take a step further from that, keeping you healthy and active alive longer. I think that that all necessitates a deeper understanding of the brain because technology that we have today in the near future could be used to improve your quality of life and your length of life. But I think that it all really stems back to your brain because that's the organ that is you and needs to be kept in tip top condition. It's interesting. Like one thought I have is the idea that any claim to want to change the world, let me bring that back under earth, like anything you want to do to alleviate suffering, 
that's going to pursue some perhaps environmental change, perhaps some socioeconomic inequity, discrimination, medicine, what have you. The interesting thing to me is that the true measure of whether you've changed something is someone's conscious experience of it. It is situated in the brain. The reason that I'm interested in the brain is because it is like the ultimate last step in any sort of chain of causes or impacts on exactly. the human condition of the brain and the peripheral nervous system. And it all runs back to the brain. Yeah, all runs yeah. back to the brain yeah. is like the substrate, I guess we'll call it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the substrate of the human condition. Exactly. Eric, this has been wonderful. There's one last question I want to ask you. We ask all of our guests this question, and I suspect I might know the answer, but I'll save my suspicion for the end. Can you share with me and with our lovely audience your favorite neuroscience book? Yeah, I can, because it's sitting right next to me. (laughs) Suspicion was confirmed. Yeah, so my favorite neuroscience book used to be Synaptic Self. I believe it's Joseph or Robert Ledeau. He's at NYU. But it is now uh, Robert Sapolsky's Behave. Robert Sapolsky's Behave, I think it came out in 2018, by far the best neuroscience nonfiction book I've ever read. It's fascinating walk through who we are as biological creatures, who we are in the concept of society, and how your brain really does drive a lot of behavior. I would highly recommend it to anybody, whether you're a student of neuroscience or whether you're just interested in the topic or if you just want a good read. I've read this book. I love this book. That's one of the most brilliant parts about the book is the fact that no matter who you are, you can still read it and be satisfied with it because it is simultaneously technical in the information it conveys, but non-technical in the language it uses. And that's why it's so well done. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much. I'm happy we made this podcast episode happen. As always, it's a pleasure to chat. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me.